Hi, welcome to The Brief for How Now Shall We Live by Chuck Colson. First thing I want to look at is who is Chuck Colson? So let me tell you a little bit about him. First off, you may know that he was what many call the evil genius of the Richard Nixon administration, one of the main schemers with respect to the Watergate scandal, which was probably the second worst scandal that's occurred in the last 120 years of American history. So this guy, while he was a brilliant lawyer, while he got a law degree from George Washington University and served as Richard Nixon's chief counsel, he was quite the evil genius, quite the criminal. And so part of what this book talks about is the power of Christianity to redeem, the power of Christianity to change things. And in some ways, his life is a very representation of that story. It shows how you can be a fallen evil person and through the power of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, your life can be changed. So this man who spent seven months in prison, who served for obstructing justice, who plotted one of the worst crimes in the history of our country from the standpoint of um, election fraud, this guy went on to establish prison fellowship. And this guy went on to establish a worldwide ministry and received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. How did he go from prisoner to minister like this? I think he would say the answer is the power of Christ. And in the beginning, God gave us two commandments, which are still in effect. He never, he never abrogated those commandments. He never uh, neutralized them. They were number one, he said, let them rule. In other words, he gave over the rulership of earth, you know, this world to us. And then he said to be fruitful and multiply. And so those two things, those are the commandments he gave us. And those are the things that we're to do. And, uh, you know, Chuck starts from there. He talks about the Bible, how the Bible answers those questions. It says that the answer to the first question you know, why are we here? We were created by God for his purposes. And then the second thing that he talks about is as far as our problem, our problem is sin. It's a sin problem that we ate of the apple, Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, forbidden fruit, whatever it was, uh, commonly represented as an apple. And, you know, we have a sin problem that all of us, we sin and we fall short of God's glory. And this is the problem that we have. You can see it everywhere. You can see it staining the world. You can see all these bad things that happen. And he goes through a number of arguments on this thing of why bad things happen to good people, you know, why they're evil. And basically what he concludes is that it's because God gave it over to us, right? And it's in our hands. And then the third question is, you know, what do you do about it? And the answer is you accept Christ. And then not only do you, uh, you know, receive Christ, but you receive the power to live in a different way. And this is the answer to the sin problem. And so this takes care of all three areas that he talked about, the Christian worldview, comprehensive. Reminds me a lot of Dr. Evans's book, The Kingdom Agenda, in that both of them apply Christianity, you know, to every area of life. Um, I would say Chuck's goes, you know, is a little broader, a little more all encompassing. And I would say that Dr. Evans's book focuses a lot more 
on the church, the family, the individual, you know, in government in those areas. He has a perspective, of course, on everything that is also from the Bible. So these two are very closely aligned. So how does he take us on the journey? Well, what he does is he covers those three big sessions we talked about, creation, the fall, and redemption. And then in a more detailed way, what he does is he covers apologetics from the standpoint of looking at uh, science and establishing that there was a beginning. And so um, let me give you some of the details that he gives there. He he gives this deep picture of the atom that, you know, he starts there. There's protons and neutrons that a proton, which is positively charged, can decay. Um, well, actually, that a neutron can decay. It's heavier than a proton. It can decay and become a proton. And what this allows is allows us to have hydrogen. Hydrogen's key to the formation of water, which is key to the formation of life. Water has unique properties, such as it's the only substance that we are aware of that when it goes to the solid state, it's less dense than in the liquid state, which allows ice to float on the top of the water, which allows fish and other creatures that live in the, the seas and the rivers you know, to live. And then he goes on to talk about you know, the Big Bang and how that shows that there was a beginning, um, which is what the Bible says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so there was someone who was before the beginning, and that someone was God. Um, and then he talks about how everything is laid out, how these are the fingerprints of God, which corresponds with what, with what Paul said right in Romans. He said that the heavens declare the glory of God so that all are without excuse, because in these you can see his eternal qualities, you know, his invisible nature, his power. These things are visible from creation. And so he says, in, from a scientific standpoint, you look at things like, you look at um, the way that uh, the earth orbits, for example, around the sun. It's a near circular orbit, which it needs to be because if it were more elliptical, as most planets are, then it would be too cold at times for life and too hot at other times for life. You look at the rate of expansion of the universe and you see that it's exactly right. If it varied a tiny bit, either way, you could have no universe. Either it would collapse into a single point. If it was a little bit slower or if it was a little bit faster, then nothing would come together because everything would be flung apart. But it's exactly right to allow us to get suns and planets and ultimately you and me. Um, then he talks about other things like a lot of the constants that exist um, you know, the, 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 the forces that exist, the major forces in physics, the electromagnetic force, um, gravity, the strong force, the weak, the weak nuclear force, and how all these, you know, are exactly as they have to be for us to have life as well. And so all these things attest to a God. And he talks about DNA, that it's an alphabet, that it is, you know, each human has an incredibly large amount of DNA in their bodies. It's like having a library, you know, that's, that specifies who you are, a set of instructions. You know, it's a book. The book has an author, and that author is God. And then he talks about, in addition to those things, uh, he talks about the evidence for Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, the historicity of it, the number of manuscripts that we have, how close they are in time to the death of Christ, the changed behavior of the disciples, how they went from sad to happy in a very short period of time. He also talks about um, you know, and how they changed, how they completely changed what, 
what they did, how they acted, and all of that. Um, but the historicity of Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection is not in doubt. It's one of the most well-established facts, you know, in history. And then he talks some about other worldviews, in particular naturalism, and talks some about New Age, their philosophy, other religions, what their philosophies are. And he looks at different areas of living. So education, um, he looks at music, uh, Gorecki, his symphony number three, there's a great story there about how Gorecki uh, was persecuted in Poland and how, you know, Poland was a communist country. They were dictating how we should live on composing his music. But he would he was protesting um, what they were doing in Poland. And of course, the Polish authorities didn't like it. They took away his position. They stopped him from composing. They stopped him from doing music. But he, they, they removed him from a teaching position and the like. But what Gorecki was able to do is he was able to uh, go ahead and compose his symphony number three in honor of the visit to Poland of the Pope. And the Pope had been assigned before becoming the Pope to Poland. And so it was a great time for them. Um, and he wrote some very stirring music uh, to, that celebrated freedom, that prayed to God for the freedom of the nation, for God's help. And it was a very powerful piece became, you know, in the top 10 or so on the pop charts, um, you know, number one on classical music charts, um, did very, very well. But the point that Chuck is making in the book is that this happened because it was glorifying God. And it showed the impact of the Christian worldview in music, in his, in his estimation. He also tells the story of, for those who may have heard it, he tells the story of touched by an angel. And it's really the story of this lady, Martha Williamson. And it's a rally, rather detailed story, but bottom line is she was a Christian working in Hollywood, and Hollywood doesn't work the way a lot of us think it does. I.e., they don't try to change the culture, but rather they try to take from what is already out there in the culture what will reach the widest audience, and then you know feed that back to the back to the culture. And there happened to be an angel craze, and God used her. You know, she had been turned down on many, many a project, but it, God worked out the circumstances of it in perfectly in such a way that, you know, she was able to take this project and Touched by an Angel become, became a very, very popular show that did serve to glorify God and his works. So what are the key takeaways from this book? I'd say they are this, that the Christian worldview is the only worldview that answers all the key questions about life. First, it explains the creation. So, it tells us why we're here to glorify God as his creations. Second, it explains the problems that we see, why we are in the mess that we are in, that we can all clearly see. Um, third, it explains the path to solve the issues that we do see. It says the answer is to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you'll receive the power to conquer sin in your life. And then it's comprehensive, the book is, in that he says it, 
the Christian worldview covers every single area of life. You know, not only these three great questions, but also art. You know, what what should art be like? What should education be like? What should music be like? What should uh, movies be like in entertainment? Um, what should every area of life? How should it function? Another area that he tackles is this idea that what you do for a living, he gets it from St. Thomas Aquinas, for our living, that that's also sacred. And so that that's part of the Christian worldview, whatever it is that you put your hands to do. And he cites the story of Bezalel in the Old Testament. And Bezalel is granted by the power of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of excellence is called in that part, the ability to do all of the various types of crafts and artistic work that's needed to build a tabernacle. So he has the ability to work with metal, gold, silver, the ability to work with weaving, dyeing, the ability to build molds, the ability to do um, carpentry, the ability to do every single piece of work. And it says it's granted to him by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it is with you as well. Um, Your work is sacred and it's part of this Christian worldview. So what's the best story in the book? Well, to me, the best story is the book in the book is the story of Danny Cross. And Danny is a boxer. He's, you know, he's an okay boxer, you know, better than average. He gets a shot uh, at the bantamweight title, gets to fight a guy um, who's number 14 in the world at the time. Unfortunately, his legs and his arms give out on him after round two. And from there on, he just takes a pummeling. But he did get a big shot at him. And uh, unfortunately, you know, it didn't work out for him. But where the book starts with the story is he's driving his car and he can't see. It's like there's something black over his windshield. He swerved to the right to avoid a big truck that was uh, in his lane. And when he did it, he didn't know what it was that was blocking his, his sight. He had been freebasing cocaine. And he had, turns out, had struck a police officer by the name of John Gilbert, who was dressed in a black oil slick, a water scan, and, and trying to block off the roadway. And he hit him, and it was him with the black oil scan clothing on that was blocking Danny from being able to see out of his windshield. And yes, he, he killed he killed Johnny. And he was Johnny was a guy who he knew. He knew him, he knew his wife, he knew his children. And, you know, he took his life. Uh, through an episode of freebasing cocaine and, you know, swerving to miss this other, this other vehicle that came into his lane. So he was sentenced to prison, the Plymouth Correctional Facility. And he tells a story, you know, of him there. And, you know, right away he had to have a fight with the guy who picked on him because he knew he'd been a boxer. This guy came at him. You know, he rapidly dispatched the guy and laid him out with a, a nice right hand. And the guy didn't get up. And then he saw all the other inmates crowd around him and they start walking him away. And then he realized they were protecting him. He first, he thought he was going to have to fight all of them, but then he realized they were protecting him and they were leading him back to a cell. And they acted like what's his name had fallen asleep in the middle of the guy that he was fighting had fallen asleep when he'd knocked him out. And from that point on, he didn't have a lot of problems with the other inmates in terms of fights and the like, except for one other uh, occasion. And that was, uh, uh, we'll get to that in a moment, I think it'd be better. But what happens is he has problems sleeping because he, he keeps seeing in his mind 
you know, the killing of John Gilbert over and over and he can't sleep at night. And so somewhere he gets it in his head that he needs to ask God to get a good night's sleep. So he just asks God, he, he doesn't really know God well, but he just asks for a good night and he sleeps. And so he continues to do this. And then he eventually goes to the priest at the prison. He tells him that he should get down on his knees. He should confess his sins. He should ask Christ to come in and as be Lord of his life. And so he did that. And then he started to have the voice tell him to quit various sins that he did, uh, to stop drinking, stop smoking, stop doing various things, which he was mostly able to do. And then he would kind of be preachy with other inmates and tell them not to do the same things. And so he told him this one guy that, and then he happened to be passing by a group of inmates who were smoking marijuana. And the old yearnings came over me, went in there and smoked marijuana. And the guy who he had been preaching to about smoking cigarettes saw him and said, I guess you're not so perfect after all, Danny. Uh, and so he went to a cell weeping, you know, and God gave him the power to, to fix that. Then eventually another inmate came through, a little guy who always looked at the ground. And this new guy came in, a tough guy, and he picked on this little guy who never bothered anybody. And so Danny stood up for the guy. And, you know, the guy was, this guy was pretty good. He threw his first punch and it, it broke through um, his guard, Danny's guard, you know, and got him a little bit. And he was waiting for follow-up, but the guy didn't do anything. So he popped him with some lefts, uh, three lefts. Then he kind of got mad and he threw a hard right and just smooth knocked the guy out. And he didn't really want to do that, but, but he did it. Now he had been, he was a believer. And as a believer, you know, if you offend anyone, then you have to go to them and ask for forgiveness. And so the priest told him, that's what you know, that's what you need to do. And so he did. He went to him, the man, and he asked him for forgiveness and the man, he gave it to him. He grudgingly gave it to him. And it, and then uh, actually later on became somewhat of his friend. And in a, one of those situations that's very similar to what the book is talking about, he goes on to get out of prison early. He's attending motor vehicular accidental deaths sessions in the prison that shorten his time. He comes out. He gets married. He has five children. He finishes college at Wheaton College, and guess who gives him the scholarship? The author of this book, Chuck Colson, his prison ministries, gives him a fellowship. And this guy goes on to become the prison pastor himself, back at the same facility that he was once at himself for, for vehicular um, homicide. And he helps over a 1,000, or actually over 1,400 inmates to get the opportunity to know who Christ is. He establishes leaders in each of the different sections of the prison. He helps people to reconcile with spouses while they're out. He basically wreaks a change. And there's another general thing here that God often does. He often uses your very most abject failures as a point of ministry to teach somebody else who's in that very same situation that there is hope after it, that there is redemption which is part of Chuck Colson's whole framework for worldviews, that last step. So I hope, pray that God would bless you and that he would keep you and that this story and this information about worldview, which is intended to allow you to be able to interject into the culture, the Christian worldview will help you. May God bless you and keep you. Hi, thank you for listening to this brief we have plenty more at ChristianBrief.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-B-R-I-E-F.com. 
May the Lord bless you and keep you. And hope you check out some of the other briefs at ChristianBrief.com.